from plant culturistas. Join me as we gaze into the abyss and the abyss gazes back at us. We're taking a journey into the dark underground, the land of mycorrhizal fungi. And our guide is the fearless, funny, and ferociously bright Liz Koziol. Anyone else have trouble spelling mycorrhizal? And not so helpful that Microsoft Word doesn't even fucking know it exists. And how about that spell checking on all your Latin plant names? Like, I can't tell you how many orders we've gotten for Asclepius Incarnate, which sounds like a fucking rad plant, but anyway, I digress. Before we go into today's conversation with Liz, a few side notes on the culture end of the wild plant culture spectrum. The song you heard in the intro was Imogene by Horse Graveyard. Horse Graveyard was my band 15 years ago. Rachel and I were living in New York City. The band was with my two best friends, Mike and Dan, Mike Braverman, Dan Skibra. It was a tough time. It was a tough time for everybody. And Rachel and I escaped from New York and... Horse Graveyard was left in the ashes. In fact, we broke up pretty much a couple days after we recorded this, which is a shame because it's been sitting in our closets for the last 15 years, and it's a fresh album. So if you're into dark, heavy, organic, rootsy, see the theme here? Music, check us out on Bandcamp horsegraveyard.bandcamp.com or join the Facebook group and putting up videos that are basically samples of the songs. And if you all know Rachel, my partner in life, business, and music, that was her singing. So Rachel Macko at the helm of Imogene by Horse Graveyard. You can hear the entire song at the end of this podcast. Also, I have a short piece out in the autumn 2020 issue of Orion Magazine people and nature. The article is entitled Hickory Gooseberry Pipeline, and it's about some botanical survey work I did a few years back on behalf of New Jersey Conservation Foundation, looking at the environmental impact of the proposed Penn East pipeline. Woven into that story, though, is a magnificent shagbark hickory and a rare gooseberry. Those of you who are into edible native plants might want to check this out. You can get a free sample issue online from Orion. Right now my article is locked online, but get that free sample issue. It's a beautiful magazine and there's some really great writing in there. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Wild Rich Plants. Growers and stewards of native plants, we grow New Jersey native species from Seed we collect in this bioregion. We offer mail order and curbside pickup. We have a lot of good fall bloomers like asters, gentians, goldenrods, witch hazel. If you're looking around and you're not seeing a lot supporting pollinators around you right now, you may want to plant some of these so that next year you got some more flower action going on. Wildridgeplants.com. Thanks for tuning in. Keep those reviews coming on iTunes. Join our Facebook page, Instagram page, yada, yada, yada. Without further ado, I bring you Liz Koziol. So there's so many things I want to ask you, but I think I'm just going to cut right to the chase. I was um, was out in the nursery today, and it's a bit of a transition in the season where it doesn't make sense to be potting stuff up that much anymore. And things are slowly moving towards dormancy. I mean, most things are still quite green, but you just sort of know that it doesn't make sense to take some little seedling and put it up into giant pot or something. And with that, like a lot of my purpose in life kind of dissipates and I kind of wander around the nursery and the farm like, Oh, what am I going to do? So I decided to weed the propagation frames, which is, they're kind of my baby. We do a lot of seed collecting and I love seeing all the different seedlings come up differently. And by poor luck, I chose the frame that I had my milkweed seedlings in and uh, started working on butterfly milkweed, which we had direct sown into these 50 plug 
like deep plugs, which is not even the way that we usually propagate stuff, but butterfly milkweed just grows terribly for us. Um, And so I'm always trying different experiments with cultural things, you know, whatever I can tweak. So this was the year for plug trays. And, you know, I'm looking at them. It's the end of the season. They're about, you know, an inch tall and more yellow than green. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like, okay, you know, maybe this method wasn't the key either. Uh, okay, you know, maybe it's too dry or there's not enough fertility. And then I'm like, well, these weeds that I'm pulling out are perfectly green. You know, they're, they're really 8 happy. to 12 inches tall. <laughs> just fine. And meanwhile, my butterfly milkweeds are there like an inch tall. And I know that they're going to be at least two years old before they're even like sellable because they need to be husky before they go out into the wild world. And so like, Liz, like, what's your interpretation of my butterfly milkweed? Like, what could something from your perspective my perspective what could be going what could be going on with them (laughs) so i've worked with milkweeds quite a bit i have a study that i um did here one of my first experiments here in kansas was looking at the mycorrhizal responsiveness of nine different milkweed species yeah so mycorrhizal responsiveness is basically we grow some plants in the greenhouse with the study the stuff i study mycorrhizal fungi and then we grow some plants without that stuff and then we compare, you know, the percent change in growth with and without the, the mycorrhizae. And butterfly milkweed is one of those plants that's like insanely responsive to mycorrhizal fungi. And so we can give that plant just, a, you know, a couple teaspoons of this inoculum, which is what we call our mycorrhizae. And yeah, we see huge growth effects, you know, even in a pot, something like four to five times larger in a season. Yeah. So some plants like butterfly milkweed, Asclepias tuberosa, right? It has this huge tuber and it's not awesome at making fine roots. It puts a lot of energy into that tuber. And so plants that don't invest a lot in fine roots tend to be the ones that are the most responsive to mycorrhizae. And they really depend on them to like go out in the soil and do the farming of the nutrients for them. Yeah. So it could be that there's plenty of great nutrients in your, your little pots, your weeds are fine. Just your butterfly milkweed can't access it. It doesn't have its its buddy that it depends on to farm for it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of plants like that in the nursery, you know, ones that we think of as difficult cases. And they come around and we kind of, they're exciting to work with. You know, yeah. eventually you do get it. And it was like, oh, wow, blue cohosh was such a holy grail plant. And now we finally have it. Because you're figuring out germination and you're figuring out the growth conditions. And a lot of the things are just like, they don't seem to relish being in a black plastic pot all season. Can be hot. It yeah. Can be hot. Um, are there a lot of plant species that are like this, you know, that require some kind of mutualism with the soil in order to grow effectively and otherwise just kind of fizzle? Yeah, there are a lot of plants that really depend on their soil microbes, and there are also a lot of plants that don't, you know. I think. Our modern agriculture is a nice example of that. We bred these corn and soybeans for so long in these annual tilled environments that have really poor soil microbiota. And so the plants have over time evolved um, less relationships with those microbiota, for example. So corn and soy are things I think of that don't really care about, uh, you know, what's what's by their roots other than nitrogen. <laughs> but so, some, yeah. I was going to say, we've done... So I mostly have done prairie work um, for my PhD research and after that. I've done a little, I'm starting to do a little bit of work in the ag realm these days, more just out of curiosity, I suppose. But so we have a database of, I think, close to 200 different prairie plant species right now, where we've done the mycorrhizal plus and minus trials with. And yeah, we see some that are crazy responsive to mycorrhizae and some that aren't at all, um, all within the same prairie community. And one thing we found, it correlates pretty well with plant life history traits. Um, So annual plants, for example, don't depend on their microbes quite as much as perennials, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. Mm -hmm. An annual plant just floats in, colonizes for a year, and then its seeds move on. You know, it doesn't need that sort of long-standing relationship with the soil microbiota like that a silphium plant might need that's going to live there for 50 years, for example. 
from the perspective of our highly disturbed landscapes, it seems like such a handicap to be dependent on something else, anything else. What kind of advantages do mycorrhizal fungi confer to those plant species that are heavily dependent on them? Yeah, well, for some, like when I think of the most mycorrhizal responsive plant I've ever met, it's Allium cernuum. <laughs> it's the nope. little onion, little prairie onion. Yeah. And if you think about onions, they don't have a lot of roots and they're super fat. And they don't have very fine roots and they don't usually have root hairs. And so a lot of alliums are really responsive to mycorrhizae because they depend on them to farm the stuff. The system just looks like an octopus or something. Yeah, there's not a lot. <laughs> you know, if you think of like grass roots, they're everywhere, like, you know. Yes. But alliums, not so much. They might just have three or four little rootlets down there. And so they're strongly responsive to mycorrhizae because they depend on them. And the thing that our buscular mycorrhizal fungi are most known for collecting is phosphorus. So if you think about fertilizers that you might add to your plants, N, P, and K, those are the, the main three. Hmm. So phosphorus is what these fungi are particularly adept at collecting from the soil. Yeah. I've heard that in some cases, if you supplement with, you know, especially like an inorganic fertilizer, you can really, um, stunt that relationship from establishing in the first place. In other words, a plant doesn't really need that fungal associate and it kind of takes a different path. Yeah, I think some plants are more facultative where you can mm -hmm. do things like dump nutrients um, in their different soil conditions and then they can pick up nutrients on their own. But then there are other plants like Allium, Cernuum, and Asclepius tuberosa who just don't really have the root structures to do it even if you give them the nutrients. Can you really give a couple other it. examples of some plants that are really mycorrhizal dependent that you've uh, worked with? When I think about prairie plants yeah. and um, like a remnant prairie is what I like to think about. That's like an undisturbed prairie. Well, sometimes they have disturbances, but a non-plowed prairie. So yeah. a prairie that's been in existence since glaciation for the most part with intact soil. The plants I think of are rattlesnake master, um, which is Eryngium mecafolium. I don't know if you're a common or science name guy, but. <laughs> um, you know what? You can feel free to mix for the purpose of the podcast. I'm kind of both, although often one will come to mind and not the other, and it's somewhat arbitrary which one it is. How I sort of learned it. <laughs> but that one I know both, Rattlesnake yeah. Master, Eryngium mecafolium. Yeah. But, but if you're more comfortable in one lingo or the other, feel free to just okay. go with it. And I can always editorialize for the audience if necessary. Yeah. So the plants that are in those prairies, like rattlesnake master, Sporobolus heterolepis, um, and Echinacea pallida, they're really highly abundant in remnant prairies, and they're also crazy responsive to mycorrhizal fungi. And that's a pattern that we see when we look across plants. So plants that are endemic to these remnant prairies, and you don't see them in many other places, even in some restorations. Yeah. Those tend to be the ones that are strongly mycorrhizal. So yeah. when I do botanical field work, one thing that's very clear and that I put up front in terms of our surveying is looking at what the land use history is and trying to separate out patches based on what kind of land use history they had. So if I'm doing a botanical survey, even before I go out and do any field work, I'll often separate out, you know, in New Jersey, it's more relevant to look at older forests, but you know, what are the areas of older forest? What areas may have been in agriculture, um, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, when we have our first uh, sort of visual evidence for that. And it's such a stark, determinant of what kind of plant community I'm likely to find. I mean, there's always cool surprises, but there are, it's a whole guild of, you know, older forest or ancient forest plants that it's unlikely to find, uh, you know, someplace that got, you know, uh, that reverted from agriculture in the 1950s or something like that. And while, you know, I can clearly say that land use history is the driver, it's always been a little bit opaque, like what is the vehicle? there and in my plant-centric world but you know groping for possibilities i always come back to the soil it's sort of this black box to me but you know there's something missing in terms of the soil either structurally or in terms of the soil community that is not allowing one set of plants to thrive that we think of as these like uh, more intact or remnant or conservative species 
And whereas in these disturbed habitats, you know, you see, you see entirely different guilds and also often, you know, a lot of non-native plants that presumably aren't dependent on, you know, native soil organisms or what have you. So I guess what I want to ask you, I'm packing a bunch of things in there, but what kind of effects do disturbances have on the fungal community? In other words, if we're seeing that, you know, the presence or absence of certain mycorrhizal fungi is determining what plant species might be there or influencing what plant species might be there. What kind of effects do different dis disturbances have on the fungal community? I guess, not to put too many questions into this question, but let's start with anthropogenic disturbances for sure with you know different things in the human land use history or recent human land use history. But also curious, like, how do other types, you know, quote unquote, natural disturbances also affect the fungal community? So, mm -hmm. yeah, well, go in the question for you. <laughs> I'll start with the easy one. It's really easy for me to think about anthropogenic change. And what always comes to my mind in, with the prairie is the plow, um, you know, so where I'm in Kansas and where I used to live in Indiana and basically that whole stretch and then, you know, north and south was all prairie and then the plow was invented in what the 1880s or something and all those prairies were tilled over turned into row crop agriculture for the most part because they made super fertile soil um, but then as that change happened that tilling process not only harmed the plants that were there but the fungi uh, especially the mycorrhizal fungi just be the nature in which they grow and so they have sort of two like two ways that they spend their time, these fungi. And so what people often think about when they think about mycorrhizae is their hyphal filaments. So the hyphae is sort of like this web-like structure that goes out to the soil. It spreads around, it can branch and fuse together. It's like this network of you know, nutrient exchange and genetic exchange that happens below ground. And then the other form is the reproductive sort of equivalent to a seed. It's called the spore. And so fungi spend a lot of time either in spore form, just waiting for the right moment or the right plant, and a lot of time in the hyphal form where they're out there collecting things and associating with plant roots. And so when I think about the plow tillage, what that is is taking that soil and chopping it up into little pieces. And so you can imagine that if a fungus is in its hyphal form on a given day when you plow a field, what you're doing is chopping your body into a bunch of little pieces. And like a human, you know, if we chop ourselves into a bunch of little pieces, it doesn't end well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and similarly for a fungus. And so over time, what happens is you see a lot of the fungi that are in this sort of more vegetative growth, this hyphal growth. Uh, with repeated tillage, they're just getting hammered time and time again and chopped up again and again and again. You know, some soils multiple times a year, um, like in a wheat field, for example, where they might till three times a year. And so over time, that results in just less fungal abundance. And some species are more uh, equipped to handle it than other in terms of these mycorrhizae. So they're about, they're really diverse, um, not only in the way that they look, I guess you can't really see them, but I can send you some pictures of their spores. <laughs> that would be awesome. They're really, really pretty. Probably as pretty as plants, you know, if you have the, the right eye for them and you like circles. <laughs> 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 but um, yeah, so some of these fungi have evolved to sort of cope with this process, such as tilling. And we actually see increased abundances of some fungal species in tilled fields relative to what we would see in a remnant. And then we see total loss of other species that can't handle the till. And so, yeah, that just that one process of tillage can dramatically shift what fungi are present in a field. Yeah. There's so many things that I want to ask you next, but I'm going to back up a little bit. And now that sure. we popped right into it, I'd like to hear more about you. Did you start okay. out as a plant person or a fungi person or in some other way related to ecology and then found yourself where you are now looking at circles? Oh, it's just anymore. random chance how I ended up here. <laughs> totally random chance. Um, I guess when I went to college, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I might study traditional Chinese medicine. And so I took a bunch of like 
plant ID classes and natural edible classes and things of that sort of nature, religious studies. Um, nothing really to do with the microorganisms that I study, not directly anyway. Um, but at some point, I just, I really enjoyed my biology classes and I sort of stuck with those and ended up getting a, a bachelor's degree in, in biology of BS. Um, and then I sort of graduated college and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I didn't really have any research experience as an undergraduate. I took a lot of courses, but I didn't do any lab work or that sort of thing. So after I graduated, I was working with the um, developmentally disabled, doing sort of like home care, but also introducing them to the community. And it was really rewarding work, but it also paid very little. I think I was making about eight, 10 an hour. And so I was definitely struggling to survive on those sorts of wages. So I was like, I'm gonna use this biology degree. I spent all this time getting this thing. I wanna, you know, put it into practice. And so I just randomly looked at jobs that the local university had, and there was one in a lab that worked with our buscular mycorrhizal fungi, which I had no idea what those were. <laughs> but I knew I liked fungi, at least. I had spent a lot of time mushroom hunting with my dad as a kid. He liked to, you know, he had his favorites, and we'd go in the woods and play and collect fungi together. So I was like, I think I know about fungi. I'm totally going to, you know, nail this job interview. <laughs> but of course, <laughs> the fungi that I study are totally different. They don't make mushrooms. They spend their entire life cycle below ground. Um, but, you know, I came to learn that over time as I, as I worked in this lab. And then, yeah, that was about 14 years ago now. So I started working in the lab as an hourly. And I did that sort of in conjunction with maintaining my other job with the working with the developmentally disabled. Then eventually I got a full-time sort of technician position there and then did grad school um a couple postdocs now and here i am <laughs> you fell into a really really interesting area of research you know something like super relevant to yeah. the questions we're asking in ecological restoration and what i love about these fungi is that you know they're ubiquitous they're across the globe they're in all environments if you have dirt in your boots right now, there's probably mycorrhizae in them. You know, there's just so much that they do <laughs> and they're so widespread. And so the questions we can ask about them are seemingly endless. And that's uh, what I really enjoy about them. <laughs> what kind of level of diversity are we thinking about here in terms of in numbers boots? of, well, <laughs> like in my socks, most <laughs> uh, <laughs> fungus from the soil. Um, yeah, are there any kinds of uh, you know wide-eyed estimates of how many different mycorrhizal fungi? Like, or let me ask this in a different way because I'm not that curious about the numbers per se. I'm interested in sort of like the scale that you need to think and work at. Like when you're doing your work and you're identifying fungus, like are you talking about species? Or are you talking about sort of wider groups or associations? Like, what kind of resolution do you have, and what tools do you use to even determine like what kind of fungi might be associating with a plant or is otherwise implicated in your research? Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot we don't know about these fungi. And one of the things that's really weird about them is that their cells can be multinucleate, which is way different than almost any other organism on earth. So for example, your cell, I'll have one nuclei, and it's the same, just expressed differently across all your cells. In a mycorrhizal fungal spore, there might be a thousand nuclei, and there could be hundreds of different ones. <laughs> so yeah, pretty crazy. And so even identifying a species can be challenging when it's hard to identify even what an individual is, because across the fungal body, it might look like a different uh, person equivalent. So that's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, what does that mean? What does that mean about fungi, like, and, and what they are? They're much more able to adapt than we are. You know, my cells are all the same everywhere and expressed differently across my body, right? But a fungus across its, like, hyphal um, body in the soil can associate with different plants and actually express different levels of nuclei to different plants and the plant might think oh this is these are two different fungi when it's all the same fungus the same fungal body and so because of that they they can be really adaptable 
and they have existed for a really long time, basically since plants started colonizing the earth from the, the ocean. Fungi have been there, these mycorrhizae fungi, the whole time. And they've done this asexually. So the way they reproduce is not by sex like most organisms. They basically just funnel different nuclei to different parts of their bodies and make these spores asexually. Um, that can be dramatically different. So it's almost like mating how humans would do it or other creatures, but not quite. Yeah. So they're very strange little guys. <laughs> and so when I think about fungi, I spend a lot of time on the microscope looking at their spores. And we, we're, we know some fungi um, are pretty consistent in the way they express their spores. So the different colors and shapes and sizes and the different numbers of membranes in these spores are pretty indicative of a species. And so there is a species concept for these fungi, um, but a lot of them are not well described and telling the difference between one and the other takes a lot of time and skill. <laughs> I've been working with them, I guess, 14 years now, and you know, I definitely don't know all the species and there's not that many of them described. There's only about 400, I think now. So yeah, they're pretty difficult to work with. <laughs> so when earlier you were talking about, you know, fungi expressing as hyphae or as spores, if they're in spore form, like, this may be very variable, but how long could a spore remain dormant in the soil or like what kind of behavior is that form going to take and what is its ability to say arrive at or colonize a new habitat that had been disturbed or had been absent that species? Basically like how do these guys get around and, and how long might they linger? <laughs> so the spores are like a seed. So if you think of like a legume seed, it's this really hard thing and you have to scarify it to get it even to germinate, you know? Yeah. You don't have to scarify mycorrhizae, but they are just a single spore. But if you put it on um, a microscope slide and put a cover slip on it and smash that spore, you can actually hear it pop. Like that's how strong the cell walls of these things are. It's a single cell and you can hear it break. Um, so they're pretty tough. But in terms of how long they stay dormant, I don't know that we have a great answer for that. I have one little anecdote where I was had a lab culture. Um, sorry, these dogs are fighting. <laughs> I had a lab culture that I left just at room temperature for six years and I checked it and the fungal spores were still doing great. Um, so for many years, uh, they can survive. But it really depends, I think, on the environment. You know, if there's processes such as tillage happening concurrently to those fungal spores being dormant, they can be busted up um, by the plow, for instance, and chopped into pieces. They also really don't like the sun. So they spend their entire life cycle below ground. So things that move the soil and might expose those spores to the sun um, basically kills them. And how might, how might they disperse to like a new or a different habitat or different place? Yeah, it's really, really hard for them. <laughs> so they spend their entire life cycle below ground. And another challenge for them is they are obligately dependent on plants. So they can't fix their own carbon. Um, just like you and I can't fix our own carbon, we have to eat plants to live. Similarly, the fungus requires a plant root to feed it sugar so that it can grow. And if it doesn't have a plant root, it can't grow. So if you think about a fungus, in the dirt and then there's a plowed field with no plants, it's brown field, it's winter or whatever. There's really no way for that fungus to, to travel anywhere else because it's, it's really stuck. It has nobody to feed it. Um, and also being below ground, dispersing is a real challenge. There's not a lot of stuff down there. There's not a lot of movers and shakers. I mean, there are things, of course, like there's been some studies where worms have moved around spores, uh, but you know, worms don't travel vast distances, obviously. <laughs> And things like prairie voles can move them around, um, but they, they have a real struggle, yeah. And I think you said this, but just to be clear, the kind of fungi that you study do not form fruiting bodies, like the way that we nope. think of as mushrooms or? No mushrooms at all. Yeah, you wouldn't even know about them unless you, know, you had a microscope or someone telling you. <laughs> so they don't make any large structures. Um, the biggest 
Spores, the biggest, the species that make the largest fungal spores, they're only about 400 micrometers, which is like barely enough to see with the naked eye. It's like if you make a, um, a little mark with your pen, like a period, it's about that size. So you can see them, but it's pretty tiny. Those are the biggest species. Most of them are way too small. Even me, I have 2010 and 2015 in my eyes and I can't see them. So definitely microscope work required. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I guess I want to tie this in to ecological restoration. And if, if these fungal species organisms are so important to certain plants and probably those plants that are also, um, you know, disadvantaged during this time of so much disturbance, and these fungal organisms don't really get around. So hard for them. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the next leap, and part of the reason that I was very interested in your work is the next leap seems to be, well, you know, can we aid in the dispersal of these species or can we help them to recolonize habitats or help them to uh, reform their association with native plant species. And I do want to ask you about nursery, but to keep this a bit circumscribed, I'm really curious about the potential for these in ecological restoration practice. Like, can this bring our echinaceas and our rattlesnake masters and, you know, um, all those other species, our Asclepius, um, and also, you know, in my, in my neck of the woods here, presumably a lot of the older, more conservative woodland species, can it help those species to be successful in some of our heavily disturbed or sort of second or 15th growth habitats that we have? Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a great question for me because I spend literally all my time thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Tell me all about it. Well, I guess I'll start with um, one of the first papers out there in, in prairies uh, was by my advisor, Jim Bieber. I think he did this in 1992. Uh, so quite a long time ago at this point, 30 years. And he was working with, I think, Bob Betts um, from Illinois. And what they did together is this thing called a microbial transplant, which in, in their case, it was as simple as taking soil from a remnant prairie and putting it into a restoration context and seeing what would happen. So this is like, you know, some of the foundational work. They didn't know if you could even move soil and if it made a difference. And who the important players are. So the first step was just taking whole soil and transplanting it and seeding plots with that whole soil and disturbed soils just to see what would happen. And what they saw was there are a lot more prairie species establishing in these places where they put that remnant prairie soil. So more species. And I don't remember the specific species at this point. It's been a while since I read Jim's paper. <laughs> but some of the great prairie species so that was sort of the beginnings. And then, of course, the next questions we asked as scientists, like, okay, who, who are the key players in making that happen? Is it just the nutrient changes that happen with the soil addition, or is it the living biota? And so we started teasing apart what organisms in that soil might be benefiting plants. And of course, we knew about mycorrhizae. Um, and so we started isolating fungi from remnant prairies. And some of the isolates in our lab collection now are 25 years old. So we've been working with them a long time. And so what we can do is from that prairie soil, take a small, it's really just a couple cups of soil and extract all the spores, sort of that reproductive structure of the mycorrhizae from that soil and um, culture it in the lab, basically indefinitely we found. I mean, 25 years is a really long time for these things to grow in the lab. And so, what we did was we took these only mycorrhizae. So we just isolated the mycorrhizae from that remnant prairie soil and added that into a restoration to see what would happen. And we found that it worked really well. In studies where we compared whole soil inoculum versus just adding mycorrhizae culture from that same whole soil, we found that for a lot of these late successional plants, um, they, they both improved establishment and growth similarly, indicating that the fungi are the driving um, component in that whole soil benefiting those plants. 
And so, yeah, we can do this microbial transplant technique. We've done it a bunch of times in restorations, pretty much in the Midwest. We spend a lot of time thinking about prairies um, and that's where we live. So we do a lot of our restorations, you know, where we are. But I've done work in Illinois and Kansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and we've done this sort of process time and time again. And it works pretty consistently where you add remnant whole soil or the major key biota from that whole soil, which is the mycorrhizae, and we can see the native plants establishing better. And are you adding like hundreds of species of fungi or are you adding a couple or like, is there a sweet spot? Yeah. So what I do, I'll go to like, you know, my local prairie and I'll just take all the spores out of a couple cups of soil and I'll culture all of those fungi. So it's whatever's abundant in that prairie at that time is what I'm growing up. Um, and usually what it ends up being depending on the restoration, somewhere between four and 12, what we call species of mycorrhizae. But of course, as I sort of mentioned earlier, they have a lot of genetic variation and it might actually be many more species or isolates than- We're gonna put official air quotes around all use of the word species. <laughs> have no fear. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty strange. They're definitely strange. <laughs> and so, you know, um, I mean, if you did some work like in Missouri and you were on some glades or something, you know, I'm just speculating here, and then you were out, you know, in the Flint Hills or something like that, are you finding that the plants, the conservative plant species are relying on similar or the same mycorrhizal fungi, or is it like completely different? And how does that Here's what I'm really trying to get at. So I was trying to ask a detailed question, but I don't know enough details to ask the detailed question. So I'm going to tell you what I'm trying to ask. Um, we see so many different habitats when we do botanical field work, right? You know, one, one day you might be working in a rich swamp and the next day you're up on an acidic, you know, ridgeline or glade. And, you know, maybe you'll see one plant community in limestone and something very different on granite or nice. And I guess what I'm wondering is, to a certain degree, different plant species are expressing themselves in these different habitats. Are we also looking at different either species or guilds or types of fungi as well? Or is there some similarity or overlap? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of overlap. So we can find fungi in Illinois, fungal species in Illinois, also in Missouri, also in Brazil, also in China. Oh, wow. So there's, there's some that are just worldwide. Um, but even within a species, like think of our own species, we're so diverse in our color, shape, and size and what we can do and not do. So there's a lot of variation even within a, a, a species. Like if you think about isolates across plates, a places. Yeah. So one thing I think about is this species, Funneliformis mossiae, which I've worked with. It's really common. Um, but I have isolates from a county in Illinois, a remnant prairie, and a county in Indiana, a remnant prairie just they share a border, the state border, but those two isolates perform differently. So that's pretty wild to me. So being so close, um, they function differently, both from a similar community. Yeah, what are some of the different functions that they're expressing or causing? What I most often think about in terms of their function, also being sort of plant-centric, is how they affect the plants. And so like you could grow a plant with fungus A versus fungus B, and it will, the same, plant species will react differently to them. And so probably what's happening is these fungi, even though they're the same species, they can evolve pretty quickly because of their weird genetics and how they can just funnel beneficial nuclei to one place and make a spore and then do this whole other thing. While this side of the body is doing some other thing with some other plant and some other soil. And so even on a micro scale, they can be functionally very different in terms of things like how effective they are at acquiring different nutrients from the soil and it also how much of a cost they extract from their plant host. So they depend on plants to grow. They need their, you know, their sugar mamas, they're the plants, and without them, they can't function. And some fungi grow really quickly and really rapidly, and they require a lot of carbon to do that. They take a lot from the plant, and others not so much. Um, and so that's another thing to think about in this, um, interaction it's a symbiotic interaction but it's not always equal tell me a little bit about your business <laughs> michael bloom 
so I started this, I was still in grad school actually, um, but I had worked on a number of experiments at this time, looking at these microbial transplant things where we either took whole soil or the cultured mycorrhizae we were growing up in the lab to do, to put out into the world in restoration context. And time and time again, I was seeing these fungi benefiting late successional plants in particular. Plants that are really hard to establish in restoration and ones that I really love, like the lead plant, which are just, you know, beautiful plants that I care about on a personal level. <laughs> so seeing them establish so well, like I saw an amorpha flower in just two growing seasons with inoculum. And some people don't even ever see it in their restoration. So I was like, man, these things are the shit, you know? <laughs> They're really just quite amazing. And so I was super impressed with them and, you know, continued on my research path with them. But people who I talked about my work and other lab members talked about their work, um, you know, to the general public and conferences, all sorts of networking things. Everyone's excited about it, but their question was always, so what can we do about it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there wasn't a great answer because it, telling people to collect whole soil from remnant prairies to put, to inoculate in the world for restoration or for nursery growing isn't a solution, you know? Our remnants are rare and precious and we can't dig them up um, for any reason. We should never be destroying remnants even though it does still continue to happen. Um, so that was a super unsatisfying answer. But one that I give, like if you know a prairie or a soil community that's being destructed, harvest that inoculum and use it in your restoration. It works awesome. <laughs> and it's super cheap if you can find it yeah. um, and easy to apply. But if you can't find that, because there's very few remnants, one thing to think about is inoculations with these biota that we care about, such as mycorrhizae. And so I started Mycobloom to provide remnant prairie mycorrhizae for people to do restorations. And so it's been about five years now and it's going great. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, you know, maybe some people who are using Mycobloom products, like, you know, you don't have to name names, but what kind of use are people putting them to? And if people are doing restorations, are you, are you yeah. seeing some encouraging results? So I used these fungi just for restoration and started this business for people to do restorations. And um, it has functioned in this way, but what I found really surprising is that people want to use mycorrhizae for all sorts of reasons, you know, and as a business owner, I'm, I just say, I have these mycorrhizae, right. you can purchase them. And then people do, and they do, you know, wacky stuff with them. <laughs> for instance, it's insanely popular to use mycorrhizal fungi in the cannabis industry. Uh -huh. um, they've been widely accepting of, you know, living soil in microbiota inoculum for a long time. And so a lot of people, um, <clears throat> excuse me, buy my mycorrhizae and they put it on annual plants like cannabis or in their annual vegetable garden. And I think that's great. Um, but I'm mostly excited about the people who buy it and use it in the restoration context. Um, and yeah, there's been some Midwest nurseries who, you know, we've connected and I've told them about my work and showed them my lovely graphs and like, hey, I've got Mycobloom, just let me know. And, uh, you know, we started working together and we sort of brainstorm as a team, like how to have this play out in the real world. You know, I do most of my experiments on like a two meter scale. It's a very small little scale, you know. And when I'm growing my plugs, my nursery plants for experiments, I might only have a couple hundred depending on the growing season, which is way different from, I imagine how you spend your day with your nursery, just having a, a lot more plugs and a lot more plants to deal with. And so like me learning from them what they need with regards to scale um, has been really wonderful. And they get to think about new things all the time with Michael Bloom. And then I also sort of have to train them like, this is a living organism and it's microscopic. So you have to treat it a certain way or it's gonna die. And so, you know, we just have to learn from each other. <laughs> well, speaking of scale, you know, if one was doing a restoration project and I'm just gonna pretend like, you know, Michael Bloom is equally applicable in New Jersey and, you know, I was restoring 10 acres of woodland or something. Is it most effective to, you know, 
go around sprinkling mycobloom like fairy dust or to grow out plants that are already inoculated with it and then introduce those to the habitat in the hope that the fungus will then, you know, successfully spread through the soil that way? Or how do you recommend inoculation of, you know, perhaps a disturbed restoration site that we want to bring back into, um, you know, this type of fungal diversity? Yeah, so I've used it in a bunch of different ways. I think the most effective way to use it is through inoculated plants or inoculated plugs. We often call them nurse plants in my lab because they're nursing our little microbes. And (laughs) the benefits to putting inoculated plugs out in the world is you know that that plant and fungus are, you know, happily associating together in that pot before, you know, the rest of the world interferes in whatever way it's going to. Um, (laughs) So that's nice. And it's also pretty conservative of inoculum. You can just put a small amount in your little pot versus if you put it out into the field, um, undoubtedly some of the inoculum is going to die no matter what your application method is. If you broadcast it on the soil surface, it's all going to die because it's going to be solarized by the sun. So I don't recommend that. Um, But I do recommend people, if they're going to broadcast it, to till it into the soil. But even that will leave some inoculum on the surface, which is wasteful of that inoculum. Are there any Um, other soil preparation techniques that would be appropriate for this class of fungi? Because, you know, thinking about fungi in general, sometimes we'll, um, you know, try to add, uh, let's say, like coarse woody debris or, you know, wood chips or things like that. But what would work for for arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi? Yeah, I've, a lot of people have started thinking about biochar. um, And I'm not sure why mycorrhizal fungi would like to be with biochar or not, but I've have read some published studies where they found that they have worked in tandem Mm -hmm. to help plant establishment. I don't know the mechanism by which that would occur. (laughs) I don't know at all. So it, um, it could be additive, like the biochar is good for the plant and the fungus is good for the plant, and then everybody becomes happier. Everybody's happy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fair. Yeah, I think the most important thing when you're inoculating is to find some way to get it below that soil surface, but also close to a plant root. And so people have started using things like seed drills that's worked pretty well, or planting inoculated plugs with plug planters or even by hand, depending on the scale of your restoration. And yeah, it is really labor intensive if you're thinking about inoculating, you know, a 90 acre restoration. Um, It's both labor intensive to apply all that inocula or plant all those plugs, but, you know, it's really challenging for me to grow this stuff at scale. And so it's pretty expensive. (laughs) And so one thing I recommend is don't inoculate everything, you know, put inoculated patches and this stuff will grow. It's very slow, but they can grow a couple meters a year. Um, if they have plant hosts feeding them. So you could put a patch here, a patch there, a patch here, and put the plants that really need those fungi in those patches. So restoration, pre-restoration plants that I think of that don't really care about mycorrhizal fungi are things like um, Elemis canadensis, a lot of mints, Monarda fistulosa, Rotibita pinnata, really pretty plants that establish great in restorations tend to not care about fungi. Um, and so you don't inoculate those guys, you know, concentrate that inoculum with the plants that are more dependent on that mycorrhizae, the later successional plants. And when we do see a restoration progressing, if you will, from some of these really early colonizers like your Minardas and Rubecchias and your Elemis and so on, to some of the, you know, again, to use a floristic quality lingo, the sort of more conservative plants, is that because those habitats are presumably slowly garnering more fungal diversity on their own. Um, You know, so there's some ability for a habitat to change its fungal composition over time, even if it's not a remnant and maybe is isolated from other remnants. Like what's happening there? Yeah. So if you remember me talking about this fungal body being chopped up time and time again, and it was slowly dying and these people are dying Like sometimes a fungal spore might persist in that soil for a really long time. You know, they're just dormant little seeds equivalent. And just like your field will have a seed bank, um, it will have a fungal bank too. And so there are instances where you can have a restoration and it does have some high quality fungi that are really beneficial, but they're just at super low abundance. And so plants like Monarda and, you know, 
Rudbeckia herta might not be that mycorrhizally responsive, but they can host mycorrhizae. And so, yeah, they can help um, grow these fungi over time to make it a better habitat for these later successional plants. Um, so that's possible, yeah. If you put in like, um, you know, let me just go out on a limb. If you put in like a whole bunch of allium cernuum plugs, yeah, um, done it. would you be like, facilitating the possible emergence of you know some dormant spores because you're giving them such a good host and you know you might be able to help provide them with the plant partner that they need to you know then become more widespread in that habitat yeah allium cernium is a great host um not only and they're just awesome plants so they really love to ask about it yeah if you look at the roots of allium under the microscope, and we do this process where we can um, basically remove all the tannins, all the color from roots, and then put this dye on it that only attaches to fungi. Um, and so you can actually look at how much fungi is in a given root. And allium is always loaded with mycorrhizae. Um, they're just really, they love them and they love to host them. They're all about the fungi. And so, yeah, they would definitely help boost mycorrhizal communities for sure. Cool. That totally anticipated my next question, which was, you know, is there a way that um, some of us who are not specialized, not specialists in fungi might be able to look at our plants and know fairly readily whether, you know, we've successfully created, uh, you know, mycorrhizal association on, let's say, a nursery plant? Yeah, I always, so... It's hard to know what's happening with the fungi, but you can see plants. Um, so if you have your butterfly milkweed and it's not doing great, chances are it doesn't have the the guys that it needs. But if it you doesn't. can, <laughs> it doesn't have it the guys. Not, not yet. Maybe next year. Not this year. You know, asexual bodies. Um, but so yeah, plants are really good indicators and. The absence of plants is also a pretty good indicator. So if you have a restoration and you've yeah. seeded it, you know, at four ounces an acre with lead plant for three years, and yet you only have two stems, and it's like one of the most common plants in the remnant prairie, like it should live there for sure, but it's just not establishing. So that's a good indicator that you don't have the right biota. Um, so do you suspect that seeds are actually monitoring for and reacting to the presence or absence of their fungal partners? Or is it more like they germinate and then just kick the bucket, you know, because they didn't have what they needed? I would guess mostly kick the bucket. Okay. Yeah. I, that's what I'm guessing. <laughs> so when I do experiments, like with Allium Cernuum, this is, you know, the poster boy for this um, podcast, I guess. Um, when I'm doing, it's a good poster. It's a good poster, child. So for those of us who are listening to, us, you know, throwing around the Latin lingo and don't know what plant we're talking about, we're talking about nodding onion. It's this very beautiful sort of prairie and glade perennial, um, super showy in a cute way. Bumblebees absolutely love it. It's also tasty. Um, delightful. It's sort of that perfect little plant where a lot of people are like, what is native and beautiful, but really short and it's never going to get tall. And it's like, well, um, you know, it's a habitat specialist, but in this case, um, this is a pretty versatile plant. And it's exciting to know for me that it, you know, thrives with mycorrhizal associates. It really does. Know that. Yeah. And so like when I'm growing in the greenhouse with and without mycorrhizae and I say it has a mycorrhizal response of 25, that means it's going 25 times larger with fungi than without. So like, that's insane. And I'm not, um, I'm not saying it's growing like, you know, as big as a house with fungi. What that really means is without fungi, it's not growing at all. You know, it germinates from its seed and has its one centimeter little shoot and it kind of just stops. And so I'm guessing that's what's happening out in the prairie too. So those seeds are germinating. They just can't go anywhere, you know? So we use a potting soil right now and it comes, you know, quote unquote with mycorrhizae. Uh, I actually really like it. Which one um, it's, is it? It's, been, uh, it's ProMix Organic with Microsoft. Okay. All right, there goes our trade secrets. Um, Ooh, so we, I mean, almost everyone uses everybody, that. <laughs> recommend it to everybody. Um, and I really like it. Yeah. It clearly has different mycorrhizae than what, you know, what you're culturing. And I was wondering if you could kind of compare and contrast a little bit. Like, what is the difference? Am I working with just like very generalist species? Uh, does that lingo even apply for fungi? And, uh, you know, what yeah, are you getting when you get like a garden product with quote unquote mycorrhizae? 
Yeah, there are so many different products out there. And I, as a seller and a producer of this stuff, and yeah. when I'm telling people, you know, my message, um, I hear this term all the time, snake oil, because a lot of people have been spurred in the past with their mycorrhizal product. And there are a lot out there that are just, don't make any sense ecologically and shouldn't exist. And I'm not sure how people can sell it. So there's a lot of different stuff out there. <laughs> For instance, there are mycorrhizal products that come in liquid form. And these spores don't like to be wet for long periods of time, they'll basically start to germinate. And so if that product is sitting on the shelf, you're left with a bunch of dead fungi. Um, so that's a bummer. And I'm really sad that there are products out there like that. <laughs> um, but a lot of the products that people buy are either inoculated um, growing media, like I think what you're using, or granular application products. And they range in how many species they include. And, um, most of them include between one and four different mycorrhizal species. Um, and for in the restoration context, there's been a lot of studies on using commercial fungi versus native inoculum, either like the whole soil transplant that I talked about a little bit, or just the mycorrhizae. And in general, what people are finding is that these native inocula transplants work pretty well, but that the commercial fungi it's super variable and on average, they don't work. It's, they are similar to controls on average. So that's a bummer. Is there, <laughs> you know, is there a danger in picking the wrong mycorrhizal fungi? Like, you know, are you gonna unleash a terrible invasive fungus upon the world or, you know, inhibit certain plant species that you might wanting to be abetting or, yeah. you know, you, just using like an ecotypically wrong strain for your area? What I always like to recommend to people is inoculate with diversity. Um, and that will help mitigate some of the things like you don't have the right species for your soil. If you have a bunch of species with a bunch of genes, something is probably likely to function pretty well in that scenario. So products with just one species of mycorrhizae, I tell people usually just to avoid in general. Um, diversity is really good in terms of mycorrhizae, that's for sure. <laughs> And the one fungus that I hate so much is um, <laughs> in the, like almost all commercial products. It used to be called Glomus interradices and now is Rhizophagus. Oh, I'm forgetting its species name. But you know, these things, their names are still changing because um, as we figure out what is a species and what isn't a species with the molecular tools that we have. But this thing, Glomus interradices, is what I would call a weed. Um, in that it's really prolific. It makes a ton of spores. It's really easy from a manufacturer's um, perspective to grow a lot of these fungi and put in products and be like, hey, I have a crazy high spore density. Um, but it's not super beneficial all the time. And on average, it's not with these prairie plants. And I guess this one tidbit, I'll just tell you, not for the podcast. <laughs> Can we have some off the record scenario? No, I need to edit this out. We can talk later. I, do, <laughs> I actually do have more questions pertaining particularly to our nurseries. So maybe we'll just, um, okay. all right, guys, so got to go. <laughs> End of podcast. Thanks for listening. Um, gosh, now everybody's going to want to know, though. So, um, well, it's just about my personal experience and testing with these mycorrhizal products. I have found many of them not to function at all. And I guess, um, it's hard for me to talk about because I wear these two hats of a sure. grower of mycorrhizae, but also you don't need to talk smack on the record if you don't want to. But <laughs> um, so something like the rhizophagus or glomus that you're talking about is that also going to preempt other fungal diversity from happening? Like if that gets there first or something, this they are super prolific. Um, but I also don't see them very common in prairie soils when I'm looking for fungi to collect to grow for restoration. And so I like to avoid it just because it's not super common in remnant prairies. Sure. Um, that's another reason I never include it in my products. But <clears throat> there has been some work looking at what happens to these commercial fungi when you put it out into the world in terms of does it mesh with the other fungi that are there or compete or what happens. Yeah. And there hasn't been a ton of work though. And what they have found is that some of these commercial mycorrhizae can outcompete the native fungi. 
And another thing that they found is that a lot of um, commercial products, let's see, this is going to be a little hard to explain, but they're growing in this um, method in laboratories called in vitro cultures, where basically they're growing on little petri plates with roots that are transformed to not photosynthesize. So it's a plant that never makes a shoot. It's just root, root, root all the time. And they're growing on this artificial media. You don't do creepy stuff like that, right? I don't do this. No, I don't do in vitro. <laughs> this artificial media. So they never experience soil their entire life. You know, for many generations, sometimes they're cultured this way for the manufacturing process. And the first time they ever meet soil is when you put it in your restoration. Um, and so sometimes they just don't know what to do. Yeah. And they don't really grow anywhere. And they have trouble like um, anastomizing. So their, their hyphae don't fuse with other fungi, even in the same species. And so they're just, they don't fit in really well. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons why it's hypothesized that they don't work in a restoration environment very well. That but in a nursery, lot. it might work better um, if you're in a situation where the choice is having absolutely no fungi or yeah. having one guy, even if it's not the best guy, um, it might be okay. <laughs> uh, that makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. I mean, when we grow plants, we try to grow them in a really naturalistic way because we know that they're not going to go out and be on an you know, IV drip of nitrogen or having misting three times a day or whatever. And, you know, they, they need to start developing whatever relationship they're going to have with soil, even as a nursery plant, so that they mm -hmm. don't go out and get shocked. So I, I get that on an intuitive level. There are so many other questions I want to ask you, but they just get more detailed and more geeky. And I'm afraid of boring people with my particular questions. So I'll ask you a couple of things offline after this. Sure. Um, but I think what I want to do now is thank you so much for your time this evening. Sure, it's been really fun. Thanks for you really know wanting to talk community. about fungi. Definitely. You're a really good communicator about them. And I really appreciate that. And thanks for asking all my half formulated questions about them because I sort of know, but I don't know enough quite to ask a precise question. So I appreciate you bearing with me. You're doing a great job. And thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot. It's been fun. So yeah, I do want to keep on talking a little bit, but um, just getting way into the weeds and the details. So sure, yeah. I'll thank you for your time now. And the last thing that I want to ask you is if people want to find you, they want to find Mycobloom, they want to find um, some of your research, um, they're curious to find out more about what we've been talking about today. Can you point us in a couple of places and also I'll very happily accept links, photos, manifestos, whatever for the show notes. And I'll put those up on the Wild Plant Culture podcast sure. site as well. Yeah, well, I am on social media, although I'm not super active, but I do occasionally post pictures of the fungi that I love and the plants that also love them. Um, my handles, I think is the right word that the kids are using these days, is at my I'll, I'll, I'll take your word on it. <laughs> so you're at Michael Bloom. I'm on Twitter and Instagram uh, for at Michael Bloom. And then my website, um, www.michaelbloom.com has some more information some frequently asked questions that I get about mycorrhizae in general and my fungi and how they're different. Um, people often purchase mycorrhizae through Amazon because that's the way the world functions these days. So it's on Amazon Prime. You can also purchase it on eBay or directly um, from me via my website. I use PayPal as my sort of shopping cart situation cool. for everybody's protection. Um, but yeah, another good way to, if you want to ask me a question directly, is just to email me at michaelbloom at gmail.com. That's great. Thanks so much. Sure. But don't go away. <laughs>